0: Weather is an awe-inspiring phenomena that captures the attention of everyone at some point in their lives, but it's also powerful and can be deadly as well. When we think about life-threatening weather, hurricanes, severe storms, and flooding come to mind first, but did you know extreme temperature is one of the leading killers when it comes to weather-related fatalities? The City of Phoenix, Arizona is keenly aware of this, ranking near the top for hottest cities in the United States. This is also one of the reasons why the city became the first in the nation to have a publicly funded office for heat response and mitigation. A heat officer. Dave Hondula is that officer and he's joining us today. Dave,
1: welcome to the Weather Geeks podcast. Marshall, good morning. Thanks so much for for having me on.
0: Yeah, it's really awesome. I I always love when I I get to talk on this podcast with colleagues and people that I've collaborated and worked with. And you certainly rank as one of those. Uh, Before I introduce who you are and your background, there's a question I always ask every guest on the podcast. I start off with how did you become a weather geek? Well, I don't know if you are a weather geek, but how did you become interested in weather, climate, geography and all the things that you've done, environmental sciences and so forth?
1: Yeah, thanks. You know, as, as far back as I can remember, I've always been interested in the weather. I grew up in New Jersey, where, of course, we were exposed to the wide range of weather events that can happen across all seasons. Uh, a clear memory in my mind is when Hurricane Floyd came through, or the remnants of Hurricane Floyd in the 1990s. And I remember being out with my parents' VHS camcorder. We had some flooding in the nearby streets. And I remember trying trying to capture how fast the water was moving and what objects were being carried down the street. And, and for some reason, seeing the the power of that weather event really struck with me. Then in, in and I think I think I can meet the bar for being a weather geek. In in high school, I had the opportunity to be one of our on air television broadcast meteorologists for the homeroom show. Uh-huh. Uh, and if if that's not weather geek material, I'm not not sure what is. But that's premium we really weather geek. Them there. <laughs> but uh, one of the aspects of that, uh, that work that I really enjoyed, we, we did some segments where we we took the microphone out, took the camera out onto the streets of campus and asked people if they were familiar with different weather terms or d- different terms that were related to weather, almost like the jaywalking segment from The Tonight Show years ago. And th- that aspect of weather communication, uh, th- that really appealed to me. And I still see elements of that in, in the work we're doing now in Phoenix.
0: So let me give you a little bit of Dave Handula's background. He's he's has a PhD in environmental sciences from University of Virginia also a master's degree in environmental sciences and a BA from in environmental sciences, all from the University of Virginia. So he's a triple cavalier, as we like to say, like I'm a triple Seminole and some of my, one of my graduate students at George is a triple dog. So uh, he was an associate professor at Arizona State University since August, 2013, where his research focused on social and health effects of natural and technological hazards with an emphasis on extreme heat and power failures. Uh, At Arizona State, uh, Dave serves on leadership teams for the Urban Climate Research Center and the Central Arizona Phoenix Long-Term Ecological Research Program. Uh, Since October 2021, he has been the new heat mitigation officer for the city of Phoenix. And so we're going to dive into that because this is history. I mean, you have made history. Uh, So tell us what your position is how did it come about? Why is it needed? This idea of a heat mitigation officer for a city.
1: Thanks, Marshall. It's really hu- humbling to, to think about that. Uh, those words you use that it that this position and this investment by the city is, is history making. But I, I do think you're right. I mean, this is a new a new tactic for local government. Uh, and m- many of us, y- you included, have been uh, studying uh, how heat is manifest in cities what that means for people for for decades we have an incredible volume of research about all, all aspects of heat but a, a narrative that i think has emerged in the past decade or so is the question of who's who's in charge where does responsibility fall for managing this problem that that you me and others have increasingly been elevating as something in in that should be in the, the public sphere, should be in the public domain gathering our attention. And it, it's not as though cities and other collaborators haven't been concerned about this problem, but it also wasn't clear to us that it was anybody's responsibility. Who, who in City Hall is accountable for addressing urban heat island? Who in City Hall is responsible for sure people are comfortable and safe in their homes avoiding heat related illness and death and in a in an ultimate case of be careful what you wish for all of a sudden the city of phoenix uh, with a a bold vision from our our mayor gallego and and city council made an investment in the city budget last year uh to, to institute this position in this office and there will be four positions and it it wasn't an opportunity i could say no to i mean if 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 a domain expert, which I'm not sure I'm comfortable claiming myself to be one of those. but if- Oh, you are, Dave.
0: I mean, I, I know it's very difficult,
1: but I, I will assure the listeners he is. If, if, if the people who have been making the argument that we need to change our governance approach for heat, heat aren't willing to step into that role and, and try it, uh, I, don't know, I don't know who would be. So I, I really felt a call to, to serve in, in this role.
0: One, one question I've had, just someone that knows you personally and collaboratively as a colleague, uh, are you still affiliated with the university or are you, have you completely cut ties?
1: Yeah, that, uh, great question. And thanks. Absolutely still affiliated. And that uh, our outgoing city manager uh, and that our new city manager here in Phoenix uh, asked questions during the interview process about how we could have stronger ties between city government and the university working on. Heat response and mitigation efforts, uh, and we we we've always been proud at ASU of having uh, city university partnerships, and everyone was very supportive of of a world in which I could live, uh, an arrangement in which I could live in both worlds and be able to keep advancing some of the research that we believe is very important to understand these problems, but also uh, on the city side, really thinking hard about how we how we integrate how we leverage all of the good work that's happening at, at the university. I think you've probably experienced just as many frustrations as everyone else that, that sometimes the the community need, as expressed in city government and the work happening in the university are are two ships passing in the night. and if, if this is an urgent problem, we we need to have those ships at least aware of one another. and by by living in both worlds, I'm excited to to try to to make that happen even even better.
0: and, and I, I'm talking with David Hondula, who is the Uh, heat mitigation officer for the city of Phoenix. I should mention, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong about this, Dave, uh, other cities, including Miami, have uh, have stood up similar positions, but they were privately funded or from foundations.
1: This is the first publicly funded position of its kind. Is that an accurate statement? That's correct. And and in in answering that, let me loop back around to the question uh, uh, you you asked just a, a couple ago. Uh, so, so this this office is in the the city budget. It, it went through the full vetting process that uh, every item would go through in, in a city budgeting process. Whether we're talking about adding uh, adding firefighters to the city budget, or uh, our particular budget added trees, uh, and we're talking about how many roads of the streets we're going to going to pave. It's th- th- this position and this this office, our office of heat response and mitigation are in, in the regular nuts and bolts of, of city budget, which means that our, our bosses are the taxpayers in the city of Phoenix. And we think having that, that this position mainstreamed in the budget and also where it sits administratively in city government directly reporting uh, to the, the city manager's office um, might give us a little additional leverage, a little additional persuasion. Uh, and maybe a little additional staying power compared to some of these positions, which are also very exciting, that are philanthropically funded. That, that you mentioned, and I do know some of the folks who are serving in those roles that are philanthropically funded are beginning the conversation in their local jurisdictions. What would it look like to bring this position on board um, more more permanently? If if this is a ma- major public problem, we, I think there's a reasonable argument that it deserves some some public investment. And yeah, just just I, to uh, r- wrap around on what. What the office is and and who's associated with it here in in phoenix we interpret our charge as a a dual and equal focus on heat response which we understand to be the short-term public safety oriented measures that keep people safe when it is hot so we might be talking about cooling centers there wet wellness checks the types of services and programs that go along with heat warning systems and, and heat alert systems but then also the heat mitigation angle the long-term strategies that are cooling the city making it safer and more comfortable for everyone uh, ensuring that it's an economically th- thriving place and that 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 dual focus really makes for some interesting days where one one hour we'll be talking to folks about uh can we have more volunteers administering narcan on the streets to help people who might have have substance abuse uh, challenges and overdose in the summer, which is a really dangerous situation in terms of heat illness. And then the next hour, we're talking about the city's landscaping contracts that are trying to keep trees alive in in the medians of the streetscape. So it it is, I know you enjoy uh, inter and multi and transdisciplinary work. And boy, in in this role, we're really living that. We have to be be on our toes and keep our head on a swivel. Because as, as, as you know very well, heat touches and interfaces with so many parts of this city and so many parts of of society. I
0: I alluded to this, Dave, in the opening about sort of where I think people, you know, tornadoes and hurricanes are very telegenic in a sense. I mean, they get our attention, Um, but extreme temperatures uh, tend to be uh you're very deadly particularly in this country and i it depends on whose stats you look at whether c d c or n w s heat ranked right up there. Talk a little bit more about this sort of silent killer that is extreme heat from the perspective how it compares to it differs from sort of more episodic weather events that that i think capture people's attention when we see these big tornado warnings and hurricane watches and media coverage. You don't get that for heat,
1: yeah yeah i I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. You know, one, one of my colleagues here, uh, I'm sure, sure he'd be happy for me to share this, this story. Uh, uh, Paul Enigas is a colleague of ours who works at the National Weather Service here, here in Phoenix. He's our a science and operations officer. And, and he's really been one of the leaders in our region um, advancing the heat conversation. And when we, we've had the chance for, for public meetings. We organize a statewide meeting every year. He shows a before and after picture of the heat wave uh, in his neighborhood. And of course, those two pictures are identical uh, to one another. There's not the strong visual uh, imagery, which I think is a, you know, creates a messaging challenge that we're we still uh, uh, fighting against. But the the, I mean, the impacts for so many people in our community and in the country are 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 too real and and too too tragic. Uh, here in Maricopa County, which is a population of about four and a half million, uh, we're going to. By the time the counting is done for 2021, we're going to see about 330 heat-associated deaths. public health community believes every one of those is preventable. You can multiply that number by somewhere between 10 and 40 to get an estimate for how many people go to the hospital uh, for, for heat illness cases that are so severe that they require formal medical treatment. And then when we've conducted surveys in this region... Uh, more than 25 percent of people say that heat has some type of adverse impact on their health or quality of life every year. Uh, out of four and a half million people, that, that that's a million. So the the number of the opportunity to serve and serve the community better is is tremendous. And just on, on those numbers that you mentioned before, uh, you know, 320, uh, 330 heat associated deaths last year. Uh, we we have a lot of work to do in our national accounting for this challenge. Uh, we're going to report 330 from last year because we have a, a terrific public health surveillance system here in central Arizona. Uh, right now, viewers could go onto a National Weather Service webpage and find an estimate for the whole United States that has a number in the 100s. You mentioned the CDC. Their estimate is 700. Academic papers estimate that the the, the burden of heat mortality could be in the several thousands or maybe even more. And well, if our estimates vary by two zeros, uh, and we believe the, the Bloomberg philosophy that uh, if, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, we got a lot of work to do on the measuring uh, to improve our, our management. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with David Hondula, who is the first publicly funded heat officer in the United States. So um, a history making. And I don't think David takes that in a sort of gloating manner, but it's a first of its kind position, uh, one that has dire consequences, as you've heard in this discussion. If we don't really do anything about it, Um, do you foresee this? And again, we've mentioned that there are some other sort of philanthropically funded uh, positions, but do you see this catching on in other jurisdictions? I mean, here in Atlanta, um, you know, we, we deal with heat. And and by the way, I mean, you know, shout out to my colleague, Dr. Andy Grunstein, who I know you know as well. I mean, he, he's been looking at heat from a perspective of uh, football in the summertime and uh, people leaving their children in hot cars. And so there are so many facets to this heat challenge that Dave and his office will be dealing with. Do you, do you see this expanding and in, in, in going forward?
1: What I'm hopeful is that we'll see. Further clarification of responsibility around heat. I don't know if for every community having a, a dedicated heat officer or, or position by another title will be the right approach, especially for our mid-sized and smaller cities where the, the resources just simply may not be there to have somebody whose sole focus is on heat. We, we are seeing indications that there will be more dedicated uh, heat office like positions coming online, Los Angeles. I, I can't remember if it was the city or the county, uh, but, but their board uh, a couple of months ago charged staff to look into what it would look like to develop a, a model for a, a heat office uh, there, which was exciting to see. But I, I think clarification of whose domain heat falls in will be helpful, even for places that aren't dedicated heat officer. We've had the frustrating experience here in Arizona in the past at public statewide meetings when, for example, colleagues in emergency management who are incredible and do great work, but they've openly asked at those meetings if they're supposed to be there, is heat really part of their uh, their portfolio? And I think we need to clarify those answers so we're not all expecting that each other is working on this problem. And in some cases that might mean you know informing someone that it's their job and building it into their annual performance reviews that they're working on heat in one form or another. But it also might be instituting uh, processes, national certification boards. Uh, I think about school nurses, for example. In the 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 story you're telling before about about uh, uh, athletes, you know, how are we training school nurses across the country to respond to heat illness and be an advocate at their school for for heat safety measures? I don't I don't know that we have a a national system or process yet, and and that that could be a helpful addition. Even if the National High School Nurse Association does not have a person whose job is, is heat per se. Well, let me also add, add Marshall, if I might, Yeah, uh, please go ahead. That you know, I I think it is important as we move this heat governance conversation forward to recognize that there there have been de facto heat officers. I would argue there have been de facto heat officers, heat leaders, even in cities that don't have these named positions. I think about yeah, so some of the great work that's been happening in New York City, for example, out of the mayor's office for resiliency. We can find other examples around the country where I think maybe unintentionally the, the heat responsibility has emerged. There has been some clarity there. And I, and I don't think it's any coincidence that, for example, New York City has a, a cool neighborhoods heat response plan because individuals have stepped forward. We've seen great leadership uh, from those folks like uh, Kizzy Charles Guzman there recognizing that there's this incredible void that we need to fill with with some effort on heat.
0: What would you say, because I know that I hear this from time to time when we start talking about heat and climate warming and, and more intense heat waves, I hear people say, well, what about the cold events? There are people that die from cold. Why aren't there cold officers in places in northern latitudes? How how would you respond to that? Because I, I suspect you'll get that or you've heard it.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, a fair question. Even in a even in uh, what we describe as the hottest large city in the United States here in Phoenix, I and mean, we, we've we had some nights close to freezing this year. And, and when temperatures get that low, it can be a challenge for many people in the community, particularly uh, th- those who are unsheltered. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that a, the idea of a cold officer is a, a terrible one. I don't think Phoenix is going to lead the charge in having somebody focused on that problem. Some of the estimates, as you're well aware, suggest that more people die from cold than heat each year in the United States. Uh, and if if public health burden is a, a motivating factor for creating these types of positions, uh, yeah, I think it'd be a very interesting model to explore. I think like, like heat, and I've certainly spent much less time thinking about cold, uh, uh, but, but like heat, the cold problem touches so many aspects of society, whether we're thinking about having warming shelters open or ensuring that people are able to keep the the power on and, and keep their their homes sufficiently warm, uh, yeah, I think it's a fair question. I, I think there's, I think you've come up with a great opportunity for a student project or maybe a dissertation of some kind to ask the question about cold, uh, cold governance. Uh, who, who's in charge of that really important problem? Yeah, and I, I think, don't. you mentioned you know, c- c- climate warming, and absolutely is. We, we've heard this argument that as our cities warm, we need to be thinking more about heat. But heat is a problem today and cold is a problem today. And I've tried to make the argument, even if we were in an era of global cooling, which we are not, to be very clear for the reader, but even if we were in an era of, of global cooling, I think we should still be doing a better job on heat. We're still having... Way too many people slip through the cracks right now.
0: Yeah. And I I think, you know, the extremes are big problems on all sides of the ledger, whether we're talking heat, coal, flood, drought. I mean, and I think they're all consistent with sort of the climate warming and change that we're seeing. Talking with David Hondula of the city of Phoenix and Arizona State University as well, which is where I know him from. We actually recently worked on a project together trying to think about how we engineer cities differently uh, to sort of redistribute or mitigate heat. Um, the urban heat island, which you and I both are very well aware of, is a, a challenge within cities, particularly. Um, give give the listeners, because again, this is a Weather Geeks podcast, and we have a range of listeners—some with backgrounds very much like ours, but others are just casual weather enthusiasts or just curious. Talk about the urban heat island and the implications that it has in cities like Atlanta or Phoenix or even Louisville or Miami. I,
1: I, absolutely, I mean, hopefully the the listeners are well aware that one of the one of the folks who's been leading the charge in understanding how cities and how urbanization affects local and regional climate is the host of this very <laughs> podcast so it's a, i'm a little out of position in in describing for the the listeners uh the, these effects but the the general idea is is that as we've modified the natural landscape to uh one that that supports societies right i mean the uh, the, the urban heat island and the consequences of urbanization uh, on our local regional climate are trade-offs, and the trade-offs have come with buildings for us to live in and and roads for us to to move quickly on. I mean, we've we've built a society that's that serves people very well in in many regards uh, and, and very poorly in in others. Uh, but one of the trade-offs of building those buildings, building those roads, is that we've we've changed the the, the fabric of the landscape to one that that gets hotter than the surrounding areas, particularly at night. The, the urban materials, the urban geometry, the machines that we're running in, in cities uh, all play a role in, in making cities uh, often, but not always, uh, hotter, and in some cases quite hotter than the surrounding neighborhoods. I think the classic textbook idea is one of a, a bullseye, where you imagine the city center is, is hot and bright red, and then it gets cooler as we move out uh, from there. I think the idea of of multiple bullseyes or more of a patchwork is really more appropriate, especially with the emerging conversation around environmental justice and climate equity. And as we look at Phoenix, as we look at Atlanta, it is very clear that there are pockets. There are hot spots where certain communities, often communities of color, often low income communities, are much hotter than the surrounding areas. there There are a pair of neighborhoods here that are just a couple miles away from each other and i know this could be said in other cities especially from some of the urban heat island mapping campaigns that have been happening recently uh, incredible temperature contrast between uh, nearly adjacent neighborhoods 10 degree difference 12 degree difference 13 degree difference and boy what a what a consequence that difference has for the the health of the people who live there their quality of life uh, their energy bills so as we move forward on our heat work here in phoenix and other cities addressing that heat inequity is is absolutely a a, a priority that
0: Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, speaking with my colleague David Hondula about heat and heat islands and health and energy and energy. inequities and so forth these are all areas that as he mentioned I've I've studied in my scholarly work as a professor and scientist at the University of Georgia and so um One of the things that I was curious about in your role, I mean, you talked about the urban heat island and we know that there are ways to mitigate. You know, There's some low hanging fruit ways of mitigating heat islands with vegetation because we know cities tend to have less vegetation. And so you don't get the evapotranspirational cooling. Um, We know that perhaps highly reflective surfaces on pavements and roadways as opposed to dark pavements, maybe lighter or reflective pavements that can help. Uh, your, our Both of our colleagues, uh, David uh, Saylor there at Arizona State, has done a lot in this area, particularly anthropogenic waste heat. I mean, when you stand by and a bus goes by, you can feel the heat of that engine sometimes. That's the anthropogenic waste heat. So, will your office be engaged in this idea of advising or implementing programs to mitigate the heat?
1: Absolutely. Heat mitigation is. Uh, we're describing it as half of our responsibility, or h- half of our focus, needs to be thinking about these long-term strategies for for cooling the city. And because our our office, which once we are fully staffed, will have four four people and almost no programmatic budgets, we are we are we are lean and mean. Uh, but I think the way that it that, that office is set up implies that our role is is coordinating and advisory to the other city departments whose work is involved in changing the landscape of the city. The big budgets are held, for example, in our street transportation department, in our parks department, planning and development has a really large staff. Those are the departments that interface with, I mean, in some cases are literally changing the surface of the city, thinking about street transportation and paving the roads. And in other cases are interacting with the development community, who's also changing the the landscape through permitting, zoning, uh, adjustment processes. Uh, so a- absolutely. Yes. To your question. We, we talked to the street transportation folks uh trying to come up with uh, as they're planting trees on the streetscape, how do we select the neighborhoods? How do we select individual streets? What do we need to do to the streetscape itself to make more spaces, to plant trees? And how does that tie into other conversations like road safety initiatives? Uh, interesting connections there. Uh, and then, you know, I think a really big opportunity for us in in the, months and years ahead is to think about our, our planning and zoning processes. Where are there checks in that system? As somebody brings forward an idea for a new project or redevelopment project, where are the checks where we are asking, what does this project do for urban heat? Right now, I don't think in many cities we are asking that question at all, or at least not asking it explicitly. And I know we have trade-offs to balance in terms of of growth and business attraction and i'll use the word regulation although that's lowercase r regulation uh you know in 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 my mind uh we at least need to ask the question and and give developers an opportunity to communicate what their vision is for for a a parcel or a project uh, that might allow for landscaping that might reduce the the square footage for for dark asphalt Right, right now at least here in phoenix that there's a lot of ambiguity in that process, and one thing we know that the development community really likes is clarity. So I, I think we'll be trying to move forward, uh, coming up with some additional clarity in terms of what we are looking for as a city uh, to try to combat urban heat island effect.
0: Now, because I am a weather geek and a science geek, I would be remiss if I didn't at least throw this on the table because I bet many of our listeners have heard of the heat island but um, may not realize that some arid cities like Phoenix can actually have a cool island at times too or are you familiar with the cool island phenomena and if so explain why it happens?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The uh so I mean and this gets to be one of the interesting uh communication challenges that we we will have working with our our mayor, council, other departments. When we talk about what the problem is we are trying to solve, I think many of us use the term urban heat island, but then we'll go on to talk about people being too hot during the day, walking from a bus stop to their house in, in the city. And that's not really the urban heat island effect. Here in Phoenix, as you mentioned, we see an inverse effect from time to time, a small one where the center of the city is actually a little bit cooler than the surrounding areas. And there have been competing theories about this, what what was coined the Oasis effect. I I think the original idea, and you may know the physics here better than I do, so, so don't hesitate to jump in and correct me. But I think the original idea was that as we've, built a city that is greener than the surrounding area with more irrigation, more palm trees, uh, more, more more shrubs, uh, that, that the cooling effect uh, and, and the fact that we have, have additional water in the system, if you will, uh, has made it hard for the city to warm up as fast as the surrounding desert uh, does during the daytime hours. There, there's been a competing theory that's emerged from our colleague Matt Jorgescu in recent years that suggests that it's the, the mass of the built environment that is taking so long to warm up that it that the the city lags behind the surrounding desert uh, and doesn't quite hit the same peak temperature that the surrounding desert might, which creates this urban cool island during the day. But the urban cool island, you know, the the, the fact that it might be a degree or two or three cooler, uh, I'm not sure how severe. Uh, I don't know what the record cool island magnitude is. I'm sorry to say that'll be interesting second project we've come up with uh, here. You yeah, the, the urban cool island. I don't think matters for uh, Fred, who's trying to get his ice cream home from the grocery store on his bicycle. Uh, it has a mile to go without any access to shade. I mean, it is it is hot and sunny uh, here and in many other cities. And without access to, to shade, we're, we're leaving a lot of people who are interested in walking, interested in biking, or maybe don't have another choice, a lot of them in harm's, harm's way. So uh, I'm not deterred from addressing the daytime heat challenge because there's this urban cool island effect, but boy, we, we do need to be careful, uh, especially in interfacing with the science community, how we're talking about the problem that is we're trying to solve because it's, it's not always the urban heat Island per se. Yeah,
0: this is a great point. And again, this cool Island effect is really sort of very anchored to arid cities. And again, the, the point is somewhat academic because in Phoenix and Las Vegas, it's hot and you know drew to uh, kind of a relative construct and it's it's not even always there but I, I did you know this is weather geeks and so i, I you know I sometimes I want to share with listeners these sort of scientific things that are out there that they may not be as familiar with. And so that's why and, and
1: I think it is an important although it may feel a little academic to the to the listeners I think it does speak to a broader point that's really important. What we, I, th- I think, nationally, across all, all of our cities, need to do a much better job talking about the uh, what I'll call the urban heat solution toolbox and the problems that we're trying to solve and being sure that we are matching the right tools to the right problem. I get frustrated reading the academic literature, uh, for, for example, uh, that talks about how tree planting will reduce heat illness and heat-related death, and I agree that there is a statistical link that could be made there, and I agree that a city that is cooler is going to to be more protective and a healthier place to live. But as we read the individual narratives of people who die from heat, individual cases, where somebody's battling substance abuse, uh, their their air conditioner has gone out in their home, I I think we academically maybe misguiding the conversation a little bit when we are positioning trees as the uh, I don't know if we're doing it on purpose but I think we are making argument that tree planting is the best strategy to save lives from heat when in fact I think there are other types of solutions or thinking about housing thinking about the unhoused that really need to be in that toolbox as well so I, I think we, we we have a community-wide effort to, to do a better job matching solutions to the, the heat challenges that, that we have. And some of that involves using the, using the right language in some of these conversations that may feel a little academic.
0: No, I, I can, that's a really great point. There's always no smoking gun panacea answer to these. They're, yeah, they're, they're, it involves socioeconomic factors, uh, adaptive capacity, resilience. You know, your your example about someone with substance abuse or are with uh, in, in a poor, po- impoverished environment. It's not just, yeah, you can put a tree there, but it still uh, fundamentally doesn't uh, sort of get at some of the root issues there that may actually increase their vulnerability. And I think that's something that, you know, we've we've talked about in our group. And I know you've thought about as well. Getting close to the end date. What 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 worries you um, what's sort of your what's on your mind most about your role as a heat officer or this big challenge that you're uh, have been asked to solve or at least contribute to the solution for the city of Phoenix? What, what worries
1: yeah, you? That, thanks. and I'm, I'm so happy you suggested contribute to this solution because uh, absolutely not one person and not one office is going to be the solution to this problem. This has to be, as Mayor Gallego would say here, a whole of government approach to tackling all facets of the urban heat problem. And I think she and our city council are really motivated uh, and passionate about th- this particular issue. And I, I think if we can solve or start to solve this problem in Phoenix, I think that'd be really encouraging uh, for many other cities around the United States where it is not you know, not yet so warm and may never get to be so warm, uh, but, but are also seeing heat heat challenges. You know, the, the intersectionality of the issues that we've talked about uh, is, is one of my greatest worries. And here in Phoenix, like many other cities around the country, we are seeing a housing afford, affordability crisis that is literally pushing people out onto the street. We, we've we seen it's, it's such a, a sad and, and staggering increase in the number of unsheltered people in our, our community. I, I'm I don't even want to see what the report has that we just completed our annual point in time count for, for unsheltered uh, and, and homelessness. And I'm nervous what those numbers are going to show. We, we know uh, from from you know, just seeing with our eyes how many additional people are out on the streets seemingly every day and not having access to cool space and shelter is a recipe for disaster in a Phoenix summer. So as, as we've had, I mean, we may have twice as many people on the streets this summer as we did last summer. We we need to protect those people. I mean, the summer is right around the corner. It's mid February, and you know we, we've already seen a couple of eighty degree days. Summer is right around the corner. But we had a seventy four
0: degree day here in Atlanta
1: just the other day. I mean, it's it's the 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 the, the clock is ticking in my mind, to you know everyone else who's worried about summer and for our unsheltered neighbors. Uh, who are there more and more of every day as we face housing crisis around the country? Um, we need to be really creative, really, really fast to help them. Otherwise, those heat-related death numbers that we talked about earlier are going to seem small in, in comparison to what we might have this year. So it's it's all hands on deck here. We've and there's a great collaborative network with our human service department, our human services campus. So so many people are involved, uh, and hopefully we can help accelerate resources. uh. To, to, to be part of the solution for, for that problem and the many other cases that result in heat illness and, and heat associated death as well. But that, that's the one that I'm really concerned about right now, how the national housing market uh, and, and, and the pricing squeeze is ultimately putting more, more people on the streets.
0: Well, we really have to end it there. Dave, where can people find out more about you, your office, either on websites or social media?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, we just got our social media up and running. We're uh, four months on the job. Heat Ready Phoenix is our tag on Twitter and Instagram. It's our Heat Ready PHX. Uh, so feel free to check us out there and there'll be links to, to various City of Phoenix websites. Uh, and yeah, you know, certainly uh, uh, I encourage folks to check out what's happening in other cities as well. Mi- Miami, Los Angeles, New York City, uh, Atlanta, uh, the National Integrated Heat Health Information System. NIHIS would be a great search as well. As I think we're really seeing uh, a new level of maturity in our national conversation around this really important topic uh, of extreme heat. And so thankful for the chance to talk about it with you uh, and the listeners on this podcast today.
0: I think. Yeah. And well, first of all, thank the Weather Channel for this platform to engage with scholars like you. And also thank you to the city of Phoenix, the mayor and the city council. For being forward-thinking uh, on this position and getting what I believe is one of the best best persons to uh, sort of uh, initiate. It's too, that.
1: too kind. Time time will tell. If, uh if, if you know if we can do a good job addressing these multifaceted challenges
0: i i'm in the prediction business i think you'll i think you'll you'll move the needle and i uh, really appreciate it but thanks so much thank you for joining us on the weather geeks podcast uh, you know it's really an honor for you all to listen in and i hope you all are listening and gaining insight on some topics that might not cross your plate on a daily basis that's what we strive to do here at weather geeks uh, no no uh, geek of the week this week uh, but we'll you next time and we'll be with you next time i should say dave thank you for joining us everyone take care i'm dr marshall shepherd from the university of georgia look around you can find cars like these
1: on autotrader like that car riding right your tail